Dear Father, we just as we talk about you and your life, the evidence seems so compelling about the kind of person you are. And uh, it's impossible to read the story of your life, the words that you said, your actions, and not be drawn closer to you. And so again, we pray that you will be the truth about you will be more clear in our minds and that this truth will become a part of our every thought and action and again that we will have something to say to the world about you. Amen. Well, this morning we finished off um, example after example going through the life of Jesus. Now, tomorrow all day we'll be talking about the sanctuary and so that gives us another opportunity to talk about uh, what actually was accomplished at the cross. All right, so um, that will come up to a large degree tomorrow. I like the fact, um, of course, we mentioned several times that Jesus dying on the cross, um, that all those cruel people shouting those words at him, save yourself, um, and uh, that in that whole scenario, um, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But the little details, um, even after the resurrection, which um, it's amazing how many times you can read something in the Bible, even a memorized verse, and then all of a sudden something just kind of pops out at you. But listen to the description here after the resurrection. Okay, remember Mary is there at the tomb. And uh, Jesus says, Woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who is it that you were looking for? She thought he was the gardener. So she said to him, If you took him away, sir, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And wouldn't you love to know the way and the expression and how he said Mary? But it was so familiar to her that she turned toward him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, this means teacher. Uh, but what, what just has... Uh, just come out of something kind of remarkable to me recently is after the resurrection, we think, okay, now the time perhaps for gentleness and humility has passed and Jesus will be burning brightness and the Pharisees will be laid in the dust. It's time for a different phase. And here our gentle Jesus is confused with the gardener. I mean, does that little detail add something? That, um, that Jesus, after the glorious resurrection, was confused with a gardener. I think that's remarkable. And even on the Emmaus Road, this whole story is, um, uh, I think, again, quite amazing that these two men, and remember we read the quote a couple days ago, that the words, it is finished in heaven, uh, that was triumph. I mean, there was a victory at that point in heaven. Um, what happened on earth? All the followers of Jesus, were they triumphant after his death on the cross? It is finished. What happened to all of his followers? Deep, deep, deep depression. Horrible. It's over. Despite the fact that Jesus had so many times tried to prepare them, I'm telling you plainly, we're going to Jerusalem, this will happen. Uh, they could not bear, they could not hear the message. All right, so here on earth, we didn't understand. We didn't get the message. And so these two discouraged men are walking on the Emmaus Road. And um, Jesus, of course, in disguise, walks with them. And he led them through the scriptures to build a compelling case that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And um, aren't there just parts of the Bible you wish, oh, that this could be expanded on a little bit? You know, don't you wish that Jesus, we would have known exactly why didn't Luke write down here are all the things. Here are the ten verses that he quoted. And um, I think we could guess um, some of the verses. But anyway, after he built this compelling case, then their eyes were opened. And they saw him. Some now did not recognize him. And then at the end, they recognized him. And what were the words after that? They said to each other, wasn't it was just like burning within us as he talked to us. Now, why do you think Jesus, after the resurrection, chose to do it this way? Couldn't he have just, right from the beginning, held up his hands, look at the nail prints, um, I've come to life. Wouldn't they have fallen down and worshipped him? Wouldn't they have run off to tell the disciples anyway? 
Uh, why did he bother going through all this long conversation first? They needed to know the scriptures. They needed to know the scriptures. They had to tell other people. And isn't it so many times, as we have brought up, what is God doing from beginning to end? He's building his case. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Why, why doesn't Jesus just stand right here before us and authoritatively tell us, here's how it is. One, two, three, four. I mean, isn't the Holy Spirit and, and the way that he works with us is that we become so convinced, so settled into the truth that we cannot be moved. And so these men were settled into the truth and once they were settled into the truth, then Jesus revealed himself. All right, much more, uh, much more persuasive to do it that way than to say, look, I'm Jesus and now whatever I tell you, you are going to believe because I'm Jesus. I think you'd much rather say, okay, let me see if the truth makes sense to you. And when the truth is burning in their hearts, it makes sense. Okay, now you get the revelation that I am Jesus. And I think... God works the same way with us. So anyway, after all of this compelling evidence that we have built about the kind of person God is, is there any way that we could believe the lies that God is severe, arbitrary, unforgiving, vengeful, and one to be feared? The life, the death of Jesus. Is that not shattered at this point? And the words, again, so many times... Uh, Jesus in his life pointing back to, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. All right. So reminding us that I, that God is just like me. Now I happen to be God, but I'm going to direct all the praise and the glory to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus, by his life, by his death, wins us back to trust. Romans 5.10, we were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. 2 Corinthians 5, all this was done by God who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends. Our message is that God was making all human beings his friends through Christ. Now, have you ever heard it explained in a way that makes it sound like God was our enemy up until the cross? Now God is not our enemy anymore. Is there anywhere where it suggests God was our enemy? No, we have been God's enemies. This was God's way of winning us to him. All right, and so the cross, it can be explained in a way that um, terrifies us of God rather than being the greatest revelation of the truth about God, that there's no reason to be afraid of God, that we love God, we trust him, we want to be his friend, can be explained in a way where we become very afraid of God if we misunderstand what happened at the cross. Okay, we're going to talk about that uh, in some more detail tomorrow. Now, I'll let you, uh, you read the last Ellen White quote there, but I want to bring up here the second dimension. Well, there are many dimensions, but the second one that I will bring up um, about why Jesus came and the importance, and that is uh, this vindication of God's principle that we talked about on Tuesday. Now, just go across the page here because I want to read this uh, quote again from Ellen White Education, page 154 about unselfishness, other-centered love. Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, the principle, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and of all who bear his name. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. All right, so Jesus shows up. Perfect revelation of the character of God. Perfect revealer of the principle of his kingdom. And of course, he comes to a people, the Pharisees, who are at their roots selfish. They want to establish an earthly kingdom. They want power. It is selfish. But the disciples also, what did they want all the way through? Me, me, me. I want to be first. I want to be first. They were selfish all the way through. Remember, we read Mark this morning where Jesus was trying to tell them again and again, no, no, if you want to be first, you need to be the servant. They're grumbling and complaining right up to the upper room. What does he do? He washes their feet. That's not the way my kingdom works. My kingdom operates on unselfishness, other-centered love. 
And so Jesus, in trying to reveal this great principle, look at, look at the process here that he takes, starting in the first Timothy 6.16. He alone possesses immortality and lives in unapproachable light whom no human has ever seen or is able to see. Okay, that can be a discouraging verse. But notice that the unapproachable light condescends. And in the Old Testament, we read about the angel prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. After that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. There is no one to help me except Michael, this is Gabriel talking, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. All right, so we have God here, Jesus. All right, he condescends. He is an angel to angels. Michael, and we get a little context here, again, about this great controversy that's going on, this description here, uh, what was going on in the mind of Cyrus. All right, and we read about the angel of the Lord who met Hagar at a spring in the desert. All right, we read about the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord in this story, and then Hagar says, have I really seen God and lived to tell about it? Okay, same thing at the burning bush. It was the angel of the Lord who came to Moses, but then just as you read on, all of a sudden it's God talking to Moses. Same thing with Gideon. It's the angel of the Lord. Now all of a sudden he's talking to God. Right? So that angel is none other than God. And we read in 1 John 1, 2, the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. So God condescends to become a human. The heavenly universe was amazed, as Ellen White's words, at God's patience and love to save fallen humanity. The Son of God took humanity upon himself. Now, to win this whole great controversy, which way is God going? Down, down, down. All right? And he would, did not come to earth as a great uh, princely king in might and in power. Okay, we think if he's going to become a human, well, certainly he's going to be a very distinguished, powerful human. But no, he was born in a manger and he came from Nazareth. And you remember the words here, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? Jesus, I mean, God, he ch chooses to come as a baby. Who's afraid of a baby, right? We're all afraid of God. Or I would say the universe uh, as a history has been afraid of God. So he comes as an innocent baby. No one's afraid of a baby. He grows up innocently in Nazareth, um, down, down, down. And he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man, don't you like that he uses that title? The Son of Man has no place to lie down and rest. The creator of the universe has no place to lie down and rest. Down further. He had no dignity or beauty to make us take notice of him. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing that would draw us to him. We despised him and rejected him. He endured suffering and pain. No one would even look at him. We ignored him as if he were nothing. And he is becoming nothing. I mean, to death. John 13, we read again about how he kneeled down and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. God becomes a servant, a foot washer. And he says in John 10, I am the good shepherd who is willing to die for my sheep. No one takes my life away from me. I give it up of my own free will. God, an angel to angel, a man to man, a servant willing to die to the point of death. And he says uh, later, the greatest love a person can have for his friends is to give his life for them. And God could do nothing less than to reveal his greatest love, which was to lay down his life. And then finally, he was arrested and sentenced and let off to die. And no one cared about his fate. Uh, what an amazing thing. Infinite, unapproachable light. Down, 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 down. And, but in this process of reaching the absolute bottom... What happened? Well, um, flip over. I actually wish I would have had this um, in a different order here, but um, let me have you, if you don't mind, skip over a couple pages here. Um, beginning of page 10, just because this fits so well at this point. Philippians 2.
He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and he emptied himself and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. For this reason, okay, he reached the bottom, nothing. For this reason, God raised him to the highest place above and gave him the name that is greater than any other name. And so in honor of the name, the character of Jesus, all beings in heaven, on earth, and in the world below will fall on their knees and all will openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't this remarkable? How as he comes down, 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 reaches the lowest place, that is what elevates God in our eyes to the highest place. All right, so, but uh, if we could just go back here. Now, now we'll point out the contrast. And before we remind ourselves of which direction Satan is trying to go, God is going down. Satan, of course, is trying to go the opposite direction. But notice the attack on Jesus during his life. Okay, this is under, on page seven, Jesus defeats the principle of Satan's kingdom. Remember, that is unselfishness. All right, Satan denies this principle. He hates this principle. And he's not going to let Jesus, if he can help it, live his life without giving in to selfishness. And so in Matthew 4, we read about the wilderness temptation. Then the devil came to him and said, if you are God's son, order these stones to turn into bread. And as a child, these didn't seem like, didn't seem like much of a temptation to me. I don't know, have you ever been tempted to turn stones into bread? Um, but the implication here, um, you know, Jesus, if you are God's son, prove yourself. You have the power. Okay, turn water to wine. Um, turn that stone into bread. Now, what would have been wrong with Jesus of turning the stone into bread? He was hungry. Ultimately, it would have been for a selfish, self-centered reason. He would have used his power for himself. Now, as you think about the life of Jesus, can you think of a single thing that he did for a me, selfish reason? A single thing. Well, let's go through some more examples here. Uh, the next temptation. If you are God's son, throw yourself down. For the scripture says, God will give orders to his angels about you. They will hold you up with their hands so that not even your feet will be hurt on the stones. Again, do prove yourself. Do something for yourself. And then the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their greatness. All this I will give you, the devil said, if you kneel down and worship me. Don't. It's too much, Jesus. Save yourself. You know what this is going to be like. These are going to be horrible years. You know where you're headed. Let me just save you the trouble right now. And I think Satan really is getting desperate at this point. Please, Jesus, worship me. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, Jesus' reply, which I don't uh, have here, but uh, Manuel Silva's, as he'd explained this, is the strongest possible rebuke. Uh, in the Message Bible, it is, Beat it, Satan. I mean, it's the strongest way that you can say, get lost. All right. So, but he defeated Satan in those attempts to uh, use to use his power. All right. What were the other temptations? Matthew 12. Then some teachers of the law and some Pharisees spoke up. Teacher, they said, we want to see you perform a miracle. Now, Jesus did lots of miracles, but they were always from an other centered love, love for others, unselfishness never to prove himself, never for a self-centered reason. And again, some Pharisees and Sadducees who came to Jesus wanted to trap him. So they asked him to perform a miracle for them to show that God approved of him. Again, do something for yourself. And right up to the cross, Herod, we read in Luke 23, was very pleased when he saw Jesus because he had heard about him and had been wanting to see him for a long time he was hoping to see Jesus perform some miracle. So Herod asked Jesus many questions, but Jesus made no answer. And any attempt 
Jesus would have uh, made at that point. I mean, just think how easy it would have been. The smallest miracle, I would say a look, a glance, and Jesus could have gotten himself out of that situation. Uh, I would say even a thought in the mind of Jesus um, against those people, and um, that's it. They would have uh, collapsed. But he did not give in to selfishness. All right, and this was really a struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. My father, if it is possible, take this cup of suffering from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Okay, ultimate revelation of unselfishness. And on the cross, now Satan realizes he's losing. It's almost over. What are the final temptations? So the people come and say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Isn't he the king of Israel? If he will come down off the cross, now we will believe in him. Right? What was Jesus wanting? His whole ministry. I wish these people would believe in me. I mean, he loved these people. And now the temptation is, hey, you know, maybe if I come down now, they're all going to believe in me. I can win them all at this point. But he never gave in to a selfish motive. And so he died victorious. He defeated self. And isn't that the root of our problem. We are self-centered. Uh, even in uh, our actions, uh, giving offering or something, isn't it suggestible? If you give, you'll get a double portion shaken down and you know, whatever, but the thought is I'm going to give and then I'm going to get a lot more back. It's amazing when you think about it how much of our thoughts and actions are rooted in selfishness. All right, and so the actions are more compelling than the words, but of course, uh, Jesus... Uh, said, whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all, be the servant of all. Those are the principles of my kingdom. And in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, in this triangle of God, us, and our neighbor, um, just notice what is where are we in this um, pyramid of, of three individuals? God is here, we are here, and where's our neighbor? Not down here, right? But we love our neighbor as our self. All right. So self is not elevated above anything, right? This is the principle of God's kingdom. So of course Paul and John have much to say about this. In Ephesians 4, so get rid of your old self, which made you live as you used to do. The old self that was being destroyed by its deceitful desires. Your hearts and mind must be made completely new and you must put on the new self, which is created in God's likeness and reveals itself in the true life that is upright and holy. Your life must be controlled by love, and that love is other-centered. And this passage here in the end of uh, Galatians 5 uh, is really beautiful about this whole principle. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Okay, selfishness makes us prisoners. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. There it is again. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. Now, we oftentimes, it's uh, maybe not difficult for us to say love God above all. But this is the hard part for us, isn't it? Love others as we love ourselves. It is only, though, as we're loving God that it is possible to do this. All right, that is an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's Spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical. Hey, these are the two ways, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way, according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? 
When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, sinful, selfish nature, your lives will produce these evil results. Sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your own little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other kinds of sins. But if you look carefully through that whole list, they are at their root based on selfishness. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, okay, not puppet strings, but when we invite him in, we agree with the principles um, of the Spirit, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And um, it's easy to read this sometimes and think, okay, a self needs to be very strong if I'm going to control all of these other things. You know, self-control means self is out of the picture. Here there is no conflict with the law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. All right, so Jesus showed us the way out, basically, of this problem that we are in. And uh, I don't think we need to go through and read each of these, but if we just contrast here God's way, unselfishness, other-centered love, with the challenge that Satan has made. No, this is the way Satan's government operates. And it becomes very obvious. We read uh, Isaiah 14. I won't go through this again, but it is... I will ascend, I will exalt, I will sit on the Mount of Congregation, I will ascend, I will be like the Most High. Okay, Satan is trying to go higher, higher, and higher, and those that agree with that principle themselves, trying to feed self, feed self. Okay, it's exactly counter to God's way. Remember, he asked Jesus, kneel down. Okay, God, get down on your knees. And in Revelation, everyone worshiped the dragon. All right, that's what he wants. And he goes and sits down in God's temple and claims to be God. Puffed up with pride, you claim to be a God. And remember, he accused Job. You're only doing what you're doing, Job, for selfish reasons. This is such a big issue. Okay, this is, it's the principle of God's kingdom. It's a major point of contention in this great controversy. Well, um, I think that there are some wonderful Ellen White quotes that, um, and I would just encourage you to read those um, later on today that speak very much to this controversy about the principle of God's kingdom. But I want to skip forward to page 11 on your handout, which is entitled, Is God's Principle Really Stronger? Okay, so we have two principles at war. Other-centered love, unselfishness, me first, Survival of the fittest. All right, which principle is stronger? Well, let's, let's look through the Bible and let's see who exhibited God's principle and who exhibited Satan's principle. Let's, let's start with God's friends. Uh, Abel, unselfish. What happened to Abel? He was killed. Isaiah, what was his outcome? Sawed in half in a hollow log. Jeremiah, what happened to Jeremiah? Stoned to death in Egypt, most likely. And Paul summarizes here in Hebrews, some were mocked and whipped, others were put in chains and taken off to prison. They were stoned, they were sawed into, they were killed by the sword. They went clothed in skins of sheep or goats, poor, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not good enough for them. They wandered like refugees in the deserts and hills, living in caves and holes in the ground. Okay, whose principle is stronger? Well, let's go into the New Testament. John the Baptist, beheaded. We know what happened to Jesus. James, Peter, Paul, John in the Isle of Patmos. Um, you know, what's going on here? Uh, this would seem that God is not demonstrating very well whose principle is stronger. And Paul, and I, I just, this, this whole passage in 2 Corinthians 11 goes on and on and on. It's amazing what Paul went through. Five times I was given the 39 lashes by the Jews. Three times I was whipped by the Romans. I once was stoned. I've been in three shipwrecks and once spent 24 hours in the water. Verse after verse, he goes on uh, retelling uh, what his life story had been. All right, so whose principle is stronger? 
And I think the key element here is Jesus' words, John 18:36. My kingdom does not belong to this world. This world is based on another principle. All right? And so when we live out God's principles, boy, that is very much at war with the way everything is designed in this world. All right, so again, just to come back to this issue in Mark 10. When the other ten disciples heard about it, okay, remember James and John, we want to be the first. We want to be the first. They became angry with James and John. So Jesus called them all together to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the heathen have power over them, and the leaders have complete authority. This, however, is not the way. It is among you. If one of you wants to be great, you must be the servant of the rest. And if one of you wants to be first, you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life to redeem many people. Now, I want you just to imagine what would happen. Let's just say that there were a group on earth, a united group that really lived out the principle of God's kingdom. Uh, What do you think would be the result of such a thing? Utopia? Or would it be persecution? (laughs) Um, Well, there was a time in history when a people, I think, uh, began to live out this principle. And it was, I think, uh, no coincidence, right after the cross, the resurrection, the disciples, I think, uh, were together and realizing, you know, that was none other than God with us. And what happened? We read what happened in Acts 2. All who believed were together and held everything in common. Now, just just as you read this, does this sound like a selfish kingdom or an other-centered, unselfish kingdom that they are starting? They held everything in common and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. This was really infectious, wasn't it? What was going on at this time? Well, do we really live out the principle of God's kingdom? And I want to read some verses to you, which I think Jesus really illustrates. This is how you will live if you are living uh, the principle of my kingdom. And these are are difficult, I think. And I think this is one reason that uh, Jesus was so easily dismissed and rejected. Matthew 5.41, if if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. Now, could we make a modern application of this? Um, you know, your superior at work unfairly gives you some additional work and um, you just double it, right? Now, is that foolish? Is that ridiculous? Um, what effect does that have on your superior? It would have to have some impact, wouldn't it? Well, let's read some more examples. And this whole passage in Luke 6 illustrates this. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do we love our enemies? Do good to those who hate you. Do we do good to those who hate us? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, let him hit the other one too. If someone takes your coat, let him have your shirt as well. Does he really mean it when he uses these words? Give to everyone who asks you for something. And when someone takes what is yours, do not ask for it back. Do for others just what you want them to do for you. Love your enemies and do good to them. Lend and expect nothing back. Do we lend and expect nothing back? Do not judge others. Do we judge others? Do not condemn others. Forgive others. I mean, these are really the key points all the way through. And I just want to imagine what this would be like um, living in this kingdom. Let's just imagine that um, everyone in this room somehow knew the deepest, darkest secrets about you. All of your character flaws are fully known and revealed. Um, That's a pretty scary thought, right? But what would it be like if that were the case, but yet instead of being condemned, maybe there's even some false theology that you have, but instead of being condemned and ridiculed 
Um, instead, you experience love, acceptance, encouragement, community, and uh, that would be a wonderful church to belong to, wouldn't it? And out of that whole experience, what would happen? Uh, don't you think that would be the best environment for restoration of spiritual health and uh, healing? All right, I think this is the ideal. And so the last one here, the scriptures also say, if your enemies are hungry, enemies are hungry, give them something to eat. And if they are thirsty, give them something to drink. This will be the same as piling burning coals on their heads. Again, what effect does it have to other people when you live this way, when you go the extra mile, when you are caring as much for your enemies as you care for yourself? And uh, I thought of, a, of an illustration. I work at a large um, medical center hospital. Oh, thank you. Just when I needed it. And, um, you know, as you can imagine, parking is at a premium at a place like this. And there are different parking lots, and some are close, some are far away, some are way out in the back lot. And um, uh, I just want you to imagine a scenario where I'm sure, and I'm not putting down my medical center, but I'm sure how it works is the people at the top, the administrators, uh, they get the best parking places, right? Um, now, what would happen? Now, this may seem foolish, but what would happen if those administrators got together and said, um, boy, you know what? The, the doctors at this hospital, they work so hard. We see them coming in at 2 in the morning and uh, let's give up our spots. We're going to let the doctors move right in there. All right. Now, what would happen if the doctors got together and said, um, but, you know, where would we be without the nurses? Right. They're always there. They're supporting us. Uh, we're we're going to give it to them. All right. And then the nurses get together and they say, um, well, let's say maybe the poor medical students, they have so many bills, you know, they work so hard, they have so many tests, let's have them, let them have the best spot. And it goes down, 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 down. And until finally, uh, the most honored parking place, maybe it is a janitor um, who's been at the medical center for a few months, just got out of prison. Um, you know, he, he's got the best spot. All right. Now, what effect would that have on him? Now, he would either, I would say, leave and say, those people are crazy at that hospital. I mean, they're nuts. Or it would have an infectious kind of thing, would it not? I mean, perhaps he would be one to this principle of unselfishness. So I think this is how it works. And uh, 2 Corinthians 2, I think, describes how it works. God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ, okay, the knowledge about his character, the knowledge about his principle, spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance, for we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills. And what I have just described is a stench to some people. But for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. All right, It very much has a dividing um, kind of a process. Yes. Well, the question was, as we look through this list, now I look through this list and it's hard for me to read this list, all right? So we're all in the same boat here. And remember that this list goes back to the very beginning. Moses' words, if you see your enemy's cow fall into a ditch, help it out. I mean, this has always been the ideal. Well, uh, there, there's a trap because if we see this list and we say, all right, I, I can do it then we fall right into the trap of the Pharisees who knew the list and summoned up all their energy to keep the list and in their efforts to keep the list, hated God. All right, so I think our, our hope uh, should not be, okay, I'm focusing on the list. I think we need the list, just like we need the law to reveal to us how we are out of harmony. And I think as we come closer and closer and closer to God, we will not have the feeling, hey, I'm doing pretty good on this list. We may feel that, um, boy, the discrepancy between me and the ideal is becoming greater because as we see God more clearly, we will also see ourselves more clearly. So I think the pursuit of this is not the pursuit of the list, but as we follow God, as we see him and his character and his principle more clearly, um, I think these things do become uh, somewhat natural, really. And then they become desirable, not uh, a great effort. Remember the Ellen White quote I read yes, uh, yesterday that, the service of the angels is not a drudgery. It is a joy to carry out the commands of God. And these things, if they're not a joy, then, uh, then we're missing something. 
right? So even in the Old Testament, we get the command that uh, if you break the Sabbath, they would be stoned to death. And even the words, if you didn't enjoy the Sabbath, you weren't keeping it. Boy, that would be, um, if you haven't enjoyed the day, then uh, you broke the Sabbath. So the words are there to show us, to reveal to us how we are out of harmony. But I think our only hope is to become a friend of God and, and he does heal us in the process. So I think it would be like coming to a doctor, um, let's say, and um, you know, you've got all kinds of problems, diabetes, heart, hypertension, and, and on down the list. And uh, the doctor would say to you, um, you must be perfectly well. All right, now go home. I'll see you back in three months. And um, you would leave very, very discouraged, wouldn't you? He, you know, he told me, I need, to, I need to be well. Now, is that the reality of what God says? Here's the ideal, and you need to fit the ideal. Or isn't God, our heavenly physician, saying, look, if you come to me, you know, keep your appointment, so to speak, uh, follow my advice, and uh, trust in me, I can absolutely heal the damage that has been done by this whole process. Uh, maybe another example, Abraham, who was told, um, you will have a son. And remember, he looked at his body and said, there's no way. But um, there are two ways he could have looked at this. Did he come to Sarah and say, um, God told me I'm going to have a son in my old age. Um, and Sarah said, man, I can't believe God is making that demand on you, Abraham. That is ridiculous that God would demand that you have a son in your old age. Was it a demand or was it a promise of something that would happen? Good news. I trust in God. He said, I'm going to have a son. I'm going to have a son. And it happened. So uh, the words, you know, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. I think we can see those as an intimidating threat. I've got to be perfect. Or we can see that if we trust God, it's a wonderful promise. That healing naturally does occur as we maintain in a, in a trust relationship um, with God. Well, so we are this sweet, fragrant incense. And as we, we maintain in this connection with God and this infectious love spreads out of us, and I think ideally not just through individuals, but through a church, what is the process here? The picture of God becomes clearer and clearer. And we read in 2 Corinthians 3, and all of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And again, we don't reflect a physical brightness. The glory is the character. We reflect the kind of person God is in our lives. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him and reflect His glory, His character, even more. And again, don't be discouraged by the words. As we all see that we are far from you know, being like Jesus, as we read about Jesus this morning. But this is a wonderful promise of good news, not a bad news threat that, oh, I've got to be that way. We just trust in God and we you know, are his friends. Um, he guarantees that this change will occur. And so as we read these last three verses, read them as a promise of hope, something that will happen, not uh, an intimidating command. So in 1 John 2, this is how we can be sure that we are in union with God. If we say that we remain in union with God, we should live just as Jesus Christ did. Wouldn't you love to live just as Jesus Christ did? If we say we are in the light, yet hate others, we are in the darkness to this very hour. If we love others, light. That is the idea. And the one chapter later, 1 John 3, here is the clear difference between God's children and the devil's children. Again, the two principles. Those who do not do what is right or do not love others, other-centered, are not God's children. We know that we have left death and come over to life. We know it. Why? Because we love others. We are now other-centered. Those who do not love are still under the power of death. All right. And the words of Jesus here in John 15, I've loved you the way my Father has loved me. And uh, just the way the Trinity and their other-centered love within the Trinity uh, I may have mentioned this the other day, but Jesus, he's not continually directing the people. I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. It's if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Point to the Father, the Father. 
What does the Father do? He gives Jesus a name higher than any other name. What does the Holy Spirit do? He doesn't attract to himself, but to Jesus. I mean, they are other-centered within the Trinity. I have loved you the way my Father has loved me. Make yourself at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. Kept my Father's commands and made myself at home in his love. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. This is my command. This is what all commands ultimately come to. Love one another the way I loved you. So, um, I don't know if there are any comments. I did want to talk some about uh, intercession, but if there are any questions or comments, this would be a, a good time. Jamie, someone... Right. Yeah, I love that the Bible gives us the whole spectrum. You know, we have Gideon, um, who, uh, you know, God came to Gideon, and uh, you remember Gideon said, show me some proof. All right, so we'll get a little demonstration here on a rock with some fire that uh, consumes some meat. And um, But then Gideon didn't really believe, did he? Um, okay, well, you know what, I'd like a wet fleece, God. Well, God gives him a wet fleece. Um, but then he must have thought, um, you know what, as the dew comes down, it probably would stay in the wool and the ground probably would dry. Oh, I should have asked for it the other way. Um, so he asked for it the other way. Okay, I want the ground wet and the fleece dry. Um, so God, what does he do? No, no, you get two chances, that's it. No, he gives him a dry fleece and the wet ground. All right, a man not of much faith, it would seem. But yet you go over to Hebrews, the faith chapter, who's there but Gideon? Um, not a man of, uh, well, it was he a man of great faith, but he's, he's in that chapter. That's very encouraging to us. Um, what about the thief on the cross? Um, all he had done was he admired the one hanging next to him. He wanted to be in his kingdom. He put his trust in him, and that was enough. You know, Jesus said, you trust me. And, um, you know, that thief will arise, I think, with a great deal to learn about Many things. I mean, he'd never kept a Sabbath, had he? Or many of the things that, that uh, we view to be so important. But he does trust God. And isn't that not the essential quality? He trusted in God and he loved God as revealed on the cross. All right, so we have those people. That, that's heartwarming for all of us. But then we also do have the ideal. Well, the ideal is Jesus. But we do have Moses saying, if you're going to destroy these people then wipe my name off the books. Okay, that is the ideal of love, love for others. All right, we have um, Stephen being stoned and forgiving those people that stoned him. That is the ideal of love. Um, we have Paul in Romans 9 saying, um, you know what, I would separate myself from God that the Jews would get this message. That is the ideal of love. So within humanity, there is the whole spectrum. Okay, the basic common denominator is we have to like the kind of... God is and put our trust in him, um, but this healing to say that we cannot change, um, I think denies the power, the healing power of God uh, when we come into a relationship with him. We absolutely can change into his image as we come to know, love and trust him. Well, I want to get uh, a little bit here to the, to the next uh, handout. I wish that uh, we had more time to give other examples. <clears throat> we sometimes suggest, well, Paul was really the theologian and has the most uh, challenging words uh, for us. But I think the life, the actions, the words, the death of Jesus stretches our theology more than anything else. And I want to just give one example of that in intercession. Okay, recall that Jesus came to explain, clarify, enhance, add to the meaning of each and every one of our, uh, the things that we believe. And so when he said in Matthew 5.38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but now I tell you, let me move much farther beyond that. And again, it wasn't that they had heard wrong. God had to give that rule. We talked a long time uh, yesterday about why Jesus comes to bring us closer, closer, and closer to the ideal. Well, there are several examples of the Bible of intercession and of pleading with the Father. I want to go through these and see if we can come to some uh, explanation. In 1 John 2, we read, I am writing this to you, my children, so that you will not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have someone who pleads with the Father on our behalf. All right, and we want to come to some meaning of what does this, what is the the meaning of, of these words? And Paul in Hebrews seven says, and so he is able now and always to save those who come to God through him, through Jesus, because he lives forever to plead with God for them. All right, but Jesus is not the only one to plead with the Father. We read in Romans 8:26, in the same way the Spirit also comes to help us, weak as we are, for we do not know how we ought to pray. The Spirit himself pleads with God for us with groans that words cannot express. But as we just read on here this passage in Romans 8, um, the Father hardly seems like someone who needs to be pled with. Listen to these words. In view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, is God for us? Well, certainly not God who did not even keep back his own son. He's for us, but offered him for us all. He gave us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen children? Who is the accuser? God himself, the Father, declares them not guilty. Who then will condemn them? Not Christ Jesus, who died, or rather, who was raised to life and is at the right side of God pleading with him for us. Okay, there it is again. All right, so uh, as we read these words, okay, the Father is for us. He doesn't condemn us. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. He declares us not guilty. Um, but yet we have the words of pleading. So are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit one in character, in purpose? Um, does the Father view us in a somewhat different way than the Son? Um, if I could ask this reverently, but is one member of the Trinity slightly less sympathetic to us than the others? And all of you are shaking your head no. But we want to understand then, what is this pleading that is going on. And of course, Jesus' words, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He reflects the brightness of God's glory, his character, and is the exact likeness of God's own being. Okay, so what is going on here? Well, what is interesting is if we go all the way back to Mount Sinai, here we have our first description of intercession. And let's read the words here in Exodus 19. Mark a boundary around the mountain that the people must not cross. We read this yesterday, but it's just so powerful. And tell them not to go up the mountain or even get near it. If any of you set foot on it, you are to be put to death. You must either be stoned or shot with arrows without anyone touching you. This applies to both people and animals. They must be put to death. But when the trumpet is blown, then the people are to go up to the mountain. Okay, they were to go up. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and all the people trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet became louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people not to cross the boundary to come and look at me if they do, many of them will die. Even the priests who come near me must purify themselves or I will punish them. When the people heard the thunder and the trumpet blast and saw the lightning and the smoking mountain, they trembled with fear and stood a long way off. They said to Moses, if you speak to us, we will listen. But we are afraid that if God speaks to us, we will die. Moses, remember God's friend, replied, don't be afraid. God has only come to test you and make you keep on obeying him so that you will not sin. But the people continued to stand a long way off. And so, because the people were afraid of God, only Moses went near the dark cloud where God was. And I wish I had the verse here that, uh, that I included yesterday when God said why I'm going to come. I'm going to come on this mountain, Moses, so that the people will believe in you and that they will respect you because they were not respecting Moses. And so again, level one here in, uh, in respect is to have knowledge. You must first have reverence for the Lord. Okay, well, God even stooped to using fear. Um, and recall yesterday the details of what the people were doing at this time. And God had to come in this way. But his friend Moses is not afraid. And so in the retelling of this here in Deuteronomy 5, Moses says, 
There on the mountain, the Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire. I stood between you and the Lord. What does that sound like? I stood between you and the Lord at that time to tell you what he said. Why? Because you were afraid of the fire and would not go up to the mountain. In other versions of this, I stood as an intermediary between you and the Lord, or I was the mediator and stood between the Lord and you at that time. So Moses interceded between the people and who? All right, who was that that came down on Mount Sinai? That was Jesus. Moses interceded between the people and Jesus. Remember, 1 Corinthians 10, all ate the same spiritual bread and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with him, and that rock was Christ himself. And Ellen White, in many places, describes that it was Jesus who came down on that mountain. It was Christ who, amid thunder and flame, had proclaimed the law upon Mount Sinai. All right? Now, recall, though, that Christ, in his ministry on earth, had no one interceding between he and the worst of sinners. Okay, we'll read this verse again from the Message Bible. Okay, later when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Um, so we have Moses interceding between Jesus and the people, and now we have Jesus in his earthly ministry um, talking, eating, uh, discussing great truths, trying to with uh, what we're at least referred to here as the riffraff of society. Well, what does all this mean about intercession? And I think there are a couple of uh, important aspects. One would seem to be if we are like the people at Mount Sinai, terrified of God, who came that we are not afraid of God? God came as a baby, grew up in Nazareth, lived, walked among us, and um, then said the amazing words, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Are you afraid of me? You shouldn't be afraid of the Father. And so when we are afraid of God, look at the words here in Deuteronomy 5 again, I stood between you and the Lord because you were afraid. And so if we go back to this verse here again in 1 John 2, verse 1, I'm writing this to you, my children, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, if we do rebel, what's the most natural thing when we're rebels? Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Immediately, what's their reaction? They're terrified of God, scared to death of God. Now, if we're in that situation, we have someone who pleads with the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. All right, and is it possible that there will be people that arise in the hereafter who love Jesus, admire Jesus, want to reflect the principle of Jesus' kingdom? Perhaps there is some fear of the Father. Won't it be the greatest thing to arrive in the kingdom and find out, you know, that the Father, he's just like Jesus, he's on our side as well. We sometimes think of intercession as shielding us from God. And I think what it is meant to do is to draw us to God, not to shield us from his anger or wrath. All right, there's another dimension. Well, I, I kind of mentioned it here, but it is to ultimately bring us to the heart of God, to reveal that God is love. I want to read now this passage in Romans 8 uh, more in its entirety, and we'll see if we pick up on this. In view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly not God, the Father, who did not even keep back his own Son, but offered him for us all. He gave us his Son. Will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen people? Who is the accuser? God himself declares them not guilty. Who then will condemn them? Not Christ Jesus, who died, or rather who was raised to life and is at the right side of God pleading with him for us. Who then can separate us the love of Christ. Can trouble do it, or hardship, or persecution, or hunger, or poverty, or danger, or death? As the scripture says, for your sake we are in danger of death at all times. We are treated like sheep that are going to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we have complete victory through him who loved us. Who loved us? For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love. 
Whose love? Neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers or powers, neither the present nor the future, neither the world above nor the world below. There is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of who? God the Father, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we know that the Father loves us? It is through the man Jesus. That's how we know the Father himself loves us. This is the whole point, to bring us eventually to where we see the Father as the same in character as the Son. And finally, I think where Paul got this, and uh, for me, really the pinnacle of the whole Bible, um, well, I guess there are several. I shouldn't make such a statement. But uh, this, these words here in John 17, 16 are incredible. Jesus, very end of his life. Okay, he has to pass on some very important information at this time. And he tells his disciples, I have been speaking to you in parables. Now, how much of the Bible is in parables and veiled? Isn't much of it in parables? All right, and uh, your other versions describe it uh, in different ways, but in parables. But the time is coming to give up parables and tell you plainly about the Father. Now, when we're reading something like this and Jesus himself is saying, I'm going to tell you something plainly about the Father. You know, man, our ears should shoot up and uh, get our pens out. And uh, this is going to be crucial. When that time comes, you will make your requests to me in my own name. Her name is character. For I need make no promise to plead to the Father for you. Why? For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Okay, how do we know that the Father loves us? Well, because you have loved me and you've heard me say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And because of that, you believe the words, the Father himself loves you. Yes, I did come from the Father and I came into the world. Now I leave the world behind and return to the Father. And what do his disciples say? When did he speak plainly? Now, now you're speaking plainly. That was plain. The Father himself loves us, cried the disciples. They said, now you're speaking plainly, cried the disciples, and not using parables. Now we know that everything is known to you. No more questions are needed. This makes us sure that you did come from God. Jesus came to reveal the Father himself loves us. And in the the good speed, uh, very daring interpretation here is, I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you. Now, we have some words which uh, perhaps have scared some of us about uh, some end time events. Ellen White, in that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. Now, what would that mean to live without an intercessor? The role of intercession has ended. What was the role of intercession? It was to bring us to the heart of God to see that God himself loves us. And it's almost at this point, and these people are described as being so settled into the truth, truth about what? Truth about the kind of person God is that they cannot be moved. All right, and these people at this time believe the words of Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And they come to the Father in the name, in the character of Jesus, and they fully believe the Father himself loves us. And I think Jesus is delighted at this time to step aside and in a sense just introduce us to the Father. The Father himself loves you. And so uh, I think the, the desire is for intercession to come to an end. Okay, They will live without an intercessor because the role of intercession has achieved its purpose. We come to God the Father. We see him as he is. We see him as the same in character as Christ. So these words here, the veil removed, the veil of lies and distortion about God. Uh, when that is removed, I'm going to read this again in 2 Corinthians 3. All of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors and brightly reflect the glory, the character of the Lord. As the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him and reflect his glory 
his character even more. It is a natural, unavoidable process that as we see God as he is, as the veil is removed, we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. We can't avoid it. All right? So as we see that the Father himself loves us and we believe that the Father himself is the same in character as Jesus, we are changed by that. We begin to reflect the character of God. Again, not a threatening, intimidating command. It is a natural process. And so as Ellen White describes these people, just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads. What does that sound like, to be sealed in your forehead? We are convinced up here about something. Is there any seal or mark that can be seen, any mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually? What's the most important truth of all? Settled into the truth about God, I would say, so that they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. And so I think ultimately, uh, God is not waiting for a literal number. We are at 1,000 or you know, 14 now or one short or whatever, but he is waiting to do something in his people, that his people reflect his character, his principle, that this good news about the kind of person God is goes throughout the world. And, uh, and as I read the Bible, I'm encouraged because it looks that it really will happen. And I think our church... Um, the mission of our church is to represent the character of our God and each of our individual things that we believe revolve and center around our God who is just like Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, as was said this afternoon, as we see the ideal of your character and we see the ideal of your principle of selfless, other-centered love, May we not be discouraged as we see how far from the ideal we are. But yet we, may we admire the kind of person you are. May we want to be your friends, for you invite us to be your friends. And may we trust in you, and we know that this friendship, this relationship with you, will be a wonderful experience. Eternal life is to know you, to know the truth about you, to be friends with you, and that we can have eternal life today. So may we enter into this relationship with you and may this good news about you, may it be seen, may it be heard. And as in the time at Pentecost where this infectious quality of your love spread throughout the world, may we witness that during our lifetime. In your name we pray, amen.